That's kind of, uh, of what's going on. Now, I want to do a little bit of backtrack because I, I, I know that some of you weren't here last week when we made the big announcement and talked about what God is doing and sort of unpacked our next little pieces of our life together. And I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but I'm going to go through a small portion of it um, because over the next, well, really three weeks from now, four weeks from last week, we're going to be kind of talking about this each week as we prepare for the next phase in our life together. But our young church plan, our young church community has been operating and living in Will Rogers as rented space. We don't own this place. Um, we just rent here on Sunday mornings for four hours. We, we're mobile. We've got a trailer outside. We pull all our stuff in and, and uh, we put up our lamps and banners and flyers. And that's really it. This space has been really great for us for a lot of reasons. One, it's allowed us to really do ministry in this community, which we love. We love being here in this community. We feel like there's a, uh, a real need for our, our heart here in this community, and uh, we love being here. It's also allowed us to do worship uh, really inexpensively. We haven't had to pay a, a huge amount of money on buildings and space and things. We've been able to operate here for a while on a pretty low overhead, which has freed us up to do a lot of things in terms of mission. Um, so there's been a lot of advantages to this space. But there's also a lot of disadvantages. Right now, we don't have space for children. They meet in hallways outside of the bathrooms. We can only use it for four hours on a Sunday morning. We can't gather here during the week. We can't use it as a launching place for mission and things like that. Life groups can't meet here. We just can't use the space very well. And our church, though small, is outgrowing uh, our current location. And so we've been, for over a year, really looking, I mean deeply looking for places. We've looked at everything that you can imagine. And God has finally, and when I say finally because there was a time where I was like, Lord, I just think you're just you're stringing us along. But God knew what he was doing all along. And, uh, and he finally led us to this, this great spot for our next phase in our life together, which is right on the corner, 49th and Western. It's the old Iglesia building. It's an old wellness and fitness center. We talked about it last week. If you're here for the first time, we want you to drive by it. Or if you missed last week, drive by it, take a, take a look at it. It's on the west side of, uh, of Western and the, the north side of 49th, right there on the corner. We actually began renovations on the space last Wednesday. Uh, those of you that follow us on Facebook, you notice there was a huge hole in the ground, uh, like a massive hole in between the third and second floors. We're doing worship on the top floor and, and uh, just kind of life and, and coffee and kids and stuff on the middle floor. Where there's a giant skylight, like a 10 by 20, and we decided to leave it there to remind where you go if you don't give. No, I'm just kidding. That, um, <laughs> We actually patched it, so that's no longer there. Um, we, uh, you may have seen that picture on Facebook. We posted it up there. We're going to hopefully next Sunday after church, and I don't want to hold us to that, but hopefully next Sunday after church, we're going to invite people to go over and have a little prayer time over there. You, but I'll let you know for sure if we're going to have enough stuff done so we can gather over there. But if not, this Sunday, next Sunday for sure, we'll go finish worship a little early. I know you're going, sure, right? You know, but we'll move over there, and uh, we'll have a little prayer time where you can see the space and, and look at what God's doing. I mean, it's, it's an amazing space for us. And there's some trade-offs, and I've been telling people, this is a series of trade-offs for us. Um, it's not like we're moving from, you know, a really poor place to a, a really great one. There's some trade-offs. It's going to give us visibility in the community all the time. Right there on Western, we can love our community, we can launch, we can do mission, we can really love our neighborhood really well. Um, but some of the trade-offs are it's much smaller. Um, we obviously don't have, you know, 6,000 square feet of space that we can use for worship. It's, it's smaller than that. We know we're going to have to go to two services. We, we don't love that idea, but we know we're going to have to. Um, we know that it's, uh, it's going to be a temporary solution for whatever our next step is. We've got a two-year lease we're signing with a third-year option, so we're, we're going to be there for a while, but, but not forever. God is going to, to do something else in, in, a, in a kind of in another phase of our life. But for now, this is an amazing opportunity for us. And well, last week, we talked a lot about this New Beginnings campaign that we're started. Um, when you came in, you maybe got the blue envelope and the little descriptor. 
we don't own anything. And that's kind of why, what I, one of the things I really love about our church is that we don't put a lot of our kind of resources into things. Um, but not owning things means that we do need things. We have to move into a new space. We need chairs, as I said last week, and we need stuff for our kids. And, you know, we, we just need to be able to make this building functional. So we're, we've got some renovations that we're going to need to do, like a hole in the ground, all those kind of things. And, and we're, we're attempting to raise the next four weeks $80,000. Huge number. We know that. You know, we, we know that. Um, you're not going to surprise us by saying, hey, that's a lot of money. I know that's a lot of money. But we believe that God is going to raise those kind of dollars for our church to really occupy this space well. Now, as I mentioned last week, if we don't come up with that full number, that's totally fine. We totally know that God has already set the way for us, prepared the way for us, and uh, we are moving forward. And so it's not going to be something you get hounded about. We're going to do it for four weeks, and then we're going to move on and step into what God has for us. So each week you'll hear me t- give you a little bit of an update. Next Sunday I'll tell you an update of where we are financially, how much has come in. If you've got your blue envelope, we encourage you to fill it out. There's two ways to give. One, you give a one-time gift uh, and then the second way is you can do it a pledge over six months. All right, we don't want to drag this on much longer than that. We don't want to have, you know, into your checkbook for six years. You know, we just, it's just space. It's not our church home. I told everybody this, this last week. It's not the new home of the Vine Community Church. I mean, we're going to use that language because it's just how we understand things. But really, it's not. I mean, it's just space. It becomes a launching place for us to do mission from. It's where we go from. We can't go to church. We can't leave church. We are the church. Ecclesia is the word that's used in the New Testament for uh, the gathering or for the church. And really just means the assembly of people, which means when we gather in the Portman's house on Sunday in two weeks just to do life together, we're as much the church there, believe it or not, even at the Portman's house, we're as much the church there, right, as we are here. And, and that's the picture of church. It becomes a launching place for mission. This building or this space is going to allow us, allow us, to carry out our mission, to accomplish our mission. And it's really important that we understand that. We're not looking for the, a building to have a building. We really don't care that much. We really want to use it as an opportunity to launch into our mission. So at this phase in our life, what's really important is that we understand what our mission is. And I talked last week about the fact that we've, we have values that we hold in trust together. Well, you see them on our banners. So we are worship-driven. Everything about our heartbeat is to be about the worship and glory of God, first and foremost, period. Everything begins and ends there. We're community-minded. We want to be a, a group of people that live life in community together, that share hearts and share life. The Christian life was meant to be lived in community. It's one of the values we hold together. We're community-minded. And that we're missionally focused, meaning that this is not about us, but it's about how we live in the world and how we reflect the love of Jesus Christ. And mission is at the forefront of what we're about, both globally and locally and in our workplaces and homes and lives and all those things. Those are our values. We have an approach to how we live those values out. Really simple things like love God, love people, follow Jesus. Those are not just fancy taglines for, you know, cool church. I mean, we're not that. They're just ways that we try and live out our values. And last week I I really introduced you or articulated maybe for for some of us for the very first time what our mission is as a church. It's not so much a mission statement, it's really more like a mission heartbeat. And so when someone says, what is our mission as a church, right, I introduced you or articulated for us our mission as a church last week. And it's really simple, to love much and love well as we take the gospel to the one, to the city, and to the world. And it's something that I want us all to know because it's as important for us to understand our mission as it is for us to understand our values and our approach to life. And especially as we're moving into this new phase of our life, I want our mission to be something our church can articulate. Hey, why do you guys exist? Well, we exist to love much and love well as we take the gospel to the one, 
to the city and to the world. So for the next few weeks, next five weeks really, what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be teaching through, opening up scripture and teaching through why that is our mission as a church. Now for those who have been coming for a while, these are not things that you have not heard. You have heard me talk about what it means to, to love much or love well and why we have a heartbeat for the gospel and what that is and, and our love for mission both to the individual and to the city and to the world. But we're going to unpack that as we push them all together into one statement. We're going to unpack it a piece at a time. Because I want you with passionate clarity as a church to be able to articulate why we exist, right? I want you to be able to articulate what our deep core is and what we hold together. Because let's be honest, this is a very different community. We are made up of all kinds of different people. We're, from, we're different ages, uh, we're from different racial backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, we don't vote the same, we like different musics, we think different things on so, kind of social issues, we don't like the same sports teams. You know, some of you think that Texas, Texas Tech is not an academic institution, I believe that it is. <laughs> Harvard on the Plains, we've been through all these things. We don't agree on everything, right? But what we need to agree on and understand together is our mission. It's what unites us. It's what drives us. Not how you vote or what you think or what you wear, how old you are, or what you look like, but instead what we're about together. So what's really important is we talk about money and fundraising and buildings and things and life and, and new steps, that we step back and we look at it through the right lens. And that lens is through a heartbeat together as a church, our mission. To love much and love well as we take the gospel to the one to the city and to the world. So this week we're going to start by looking at the first part of that mission, which is love much, right? We're going to look at that and then we'll move to love well, talk about the gospel, then the one, the city, and the world. And we'll unpack that over the next few weeks. And then as we come to a close on that, it'll be the Sunday that we move in to our new space. So very cool things happening. And we'll be telling you a lot more about how you can get involved in this process of helping us with the new space and things like that as, as time goes by. But this morning, we're going to be in the book of Luke chapter 7 as we dive into this mission together, uh, this kind of statement or collective group of ideas. And we really talk about what it means to love well. Um, or love much, excuse me. Luke chapter 7. Before we pray and open that up, I, I want to tell you that uh, I, if you've gone through our covenant membership class or uh, if you've been for any time, you've heard me use that phrase before, that I had this sort of secret kind of heart for our church, that we would love much and that we would love well. And I always kind of promised you that I was going to unpack that for us a little bit more. Well, now is that time. And, and so these are important things for us to understand about who we're called to be. What does it mean to really love much? Uh, Luke chapter 7, uh, we're going to look at a, a pretty familiar story, one that I've actually kind of talked through a, a, a couple of years ago or a year and a half ago, but we're going to take it from a little bit different angle this morning um, as we look at it together. Luke chapter 7 verse 36, I'm going to pray for us and then we'll, uh, we'll dive kind of headlong into it together. God, I thank you so much. I thank you that you are so faithful, God, and that I am so faithless. And Lord, I confess that there have been so many times over this past 12 months where in all honesty, I've said, God, where are you? I mean, it feels like, you know, things are, are happening and unfolding, and there's not a lot of answers for things, both personally in my own life and in our life as a church. And, and yet, God, you are, are so faithful. God, you, you are so faithful, and your love covers my inadequacies. And God, I, I think about us as a church, and I think about how true those statements are, that all the time we're so faithless in our own personal lives and as followers of Christ. We've seen you do the miraculous over and over and over again. And yet, in moments of fear or struggle or strife, we ask, God, where are you? So Lord, this morning what I pray that you teach us is you pray that you teach us who we really are and what our need really is. Take a moment and just ask God to, to kind of prepare you for those questions this morning. God, who... Who am I really and, and what is my real need? 
as we really unpack together what it looks like for us to love much. Whisper those things to the Lord. And take a moment and pray for that person beside you. Maybe it's your husband, maybe it's your wife, maybe it's your friend, maybe it's someone you've never seen. Just pray for them. I always say be in the habit of praying for other people. Pray that God would move in them this morning. Just pray for them. Lord, this morning is yours. We turn it over to you. We don't invite you into this place. God, we know that you're already here. Lord, we pray that you would move in our hearts. You would teach us through your word. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. And so, God, we ask that you would convict and challenge us as we come face to face with your truth. We ask this in Jesus' perfect and holy name. Amen. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 7 as we really tackle this idea of what it means to love much. Jesus, uh, well, we'll get into it. Luke chapter 7, verse 36, going down through 50. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And when a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and she stood behind him at his feet weeping, and she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him, what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. And Jesus answered, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owned a money lender, money lender certain, uh, owed a, money to a certain money lender. Excuse me. One owed him 500 denarii and the other owed him 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came to your house and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been given loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? And so Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, it's probably a familiar story. It's one that's been echoed through several of the gospel accounts. And it it's really stems for me around this idea of what it really means to love. To love deeply. And the words that we're using are to love much. I mean, what does that really mean? Because if we're honest, when I say that we want to love much, the immediate thing that most of us think about is that we need to love more. Right? So loving much means not loving a little, but loving a lot. Loving more. Doing more. Right? Pushing ourselves to love more than we currently love. And certainly as a church, that would be a very kind of admirable goal is to be a church that loved a whole lot. But that's not really what I'm talking about at all. And it's not really what we mean when we say that we want to be a church that loves much. Because when we look at the story, there's really not the picture of loving more. Loving much actually begins with the understanding of who you really are. So you've got this, this man, this Pharisee, right? There were 6,000 of them spread all over the uh, kind of Judean countryside. And they were the religious keepers of the law. 
they were the ones that, that held everybody else accountable. They knew the law backwards and forwards, and they knew the oral tradition that they created and that they held in the same um, kind of category as the law. They created an oral tradition to try and explain the law, and they gave it the same power as Scripture itself. And these were the religious leaders. And there was one of those Pharisees named Simon. And Simon invited Jesus into his house. He said, Jesus, I want you to come have dinner with me. Which wasn't an uncommon practice because the Pharisees were always looking for ways to trick Jesus. It wasn't like they were hoping for a, a fun dinner party. They wanted him to be invited to their house so that they could get into a philosophical debate about the law and ultimately get Jesus kind of wrapped around his own words and, and they could be proven right or they could have reason to arrest him or any number of things. But they, Simon invited Jesus into his house. And it says that Jesus was reclining at the table, which was a really common practice because when you shared a meal with people in those days, it wasn't like you just went by and you sat down, you ate, and you left. I mean, you know, eating for us is, is very pedestrian. It's just something we kind of have to do. But in the Middle East and in other cultures, sharing a meal is about sharing life. And so Jesus at Simon's house, the Pharisee, and they are eating, and he's leaning back at the table, reclining, and they are sharing life. And it says that there is this woman, right? There is this woman, and we don't know a whole lot about her, but what we do know is that she was a woman, and when she learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, right, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and she came to find Jesus. The only other thing we know about this woman was that this is a woman who had lived a sinful life, which is a really kind of nice way in Scripture of saying she was a prostitute. So there's a woman in town, everybody kind of knew about her, and she was a prostitute. She heard Jesus was coming, and so she gathered her alabaster jar of perfume, little clay jar of perfume, and she went to Simon's house, the Pharisee, the religious leader's house, crosses that threshold and falls at the feet of Jesus behind him. So he's sitting at the table, she's almost crawling on the ground. And it says that as she's laying at his feet, she begins to weep. Weep. Tears falling on his feet. And as she sees that his feet are getting wet, she begins to wipe them with her hair. Takes that alabaster jar of perfume, one that she's probably used a, a dozen times to cover up her own sort of life's sinfulness, and pours it on the feet of Jesus. And of course, Simon, the Pharisee, is standing over here watching all this kind of unfold, this prostitute. Everybody knew her. Small towns. You know what she did scrubbing the feet of Jesus with her hair. And he was appalled. And he was appalled because she was unclean. And by very, the very means of touching Jesus, she made him unclean. In fact, by the very means of being in his house, she was making everybody unclean. And that Pharisee Simon starts kind of muttering under his breath. The scripture says that he says to himself, man, if this guy were really a prophet, I mean, if he were really a prophet, he would know who was touching him and that she is making him unclean. And the story says that Jesus turns to Simon. And he says, hey, Simon, let me ask you a question. Right? And he says, okay, yeah, ask me your question. He says, hey, there's, there's two guys, and they both owe a money lender some money. One owes 50 denarii, the one's 500. And denarii is basically about a day's wages. So one owes 50 days' wages, and the other owes 500. And the money lender knows that neither of those guys are going to be able to pay him back. They're both broke. They don't have the money. One owes 50, one owes 500. Neither can pay him back. So he cancels the debt of both. He says, guess what? Both of you guys, debts are forgiven. Nobody owes me anything. He says, Simon, which one of those guys is going to love the money lender more? Well, Simon says, well, it sounds like an easy question. It seems like the one that had the most forgiven, right? If I had the most money forgiven, over a year's worth of salary forgiven, I'd be so grateful. I would love much. So he said, I, uh, I would suggest the one that, that had the bigger debt forgiven. He said, that's, that's exactly right. 
And he said, look at this woman. I want you to look at her. Because ever since I came in here, she's fallen at my feet, right? And she's weeped on them and wiped them with her tears and covered them in perfume. When I showed up in your house, you didn't as much give me any water to clean my feet with. You didn't kiss me, which was a kind of a Jewish greeting of hospitality. You didn't even give me any oil, which is kind of an, an, an anointing of, of someone who was a prophet, right? You did none of those things. But since I've come in, she has not stopped. And not stopped. And he says, this woman has loved much. And he says, your sins are forgiven, woman, because you've loved much. And, of course, the other guests were like, he forgives her sins? And they were appalled because no one could forgive sins but God alone. And Jesus then looks at her and he says, woman, your faith has freed you. Go in peace. And it's really a pretty incredible interaction because we're really talking about this idea of love, loving much. What does that really mean? Because our story is not about the picture of someone who loves a whole lot and does a whole lot of things and serves the world really well and does stuff for God. Our story is about a prostitute and a religious leader. So when I talk about the idea of loving much, I'm not talking about a church that goes out and does a whole lot of stuff. I'm talking about a church and a group of Christ followers that understand who they really are. Because if you think about this woman, the one thing that she did was that she understood who she really was. She knew what she did for a living. She knew that she was a prostitute. She knew what people thought about her. She knew how she made money. She knew all that. She knew that she was a desperate, broken, sinful mess, and she knew that by very virtue of her presence in that room was making all the people in that room, the religious people in that room, cringe. She knew it. She also knew that she had no way to remedy her own situation. When she heard that Jesus was coming to town, she gathered up her perfume, and she decided that she was just going to go for it, even if it meant she was thrown out of town, put in jail, whatever. She was going to cross that threshold of Simon's house, and she was going to find Jesus, and she was going to throw himself at her feet. Because this woman, what she did was she recognized her own need. That she was a prostitute, broken and sinful, and that she couldn't remedy her own situation. And Jesus explains that in the story. He says the two people that own money, that owe money, one of them recognizes their incredible debt, and the other one doesn't even see it. Which is really the most dangerous kind of debt, right? The kind you don't even recognize or acknowledge. But the reality of that story is that both people in that story were in debt, and neither of them can remedy their own situation either but see loving much begins with understanding who we really are this woman was a broken sinful mess who needed jesus see this is where loving much begins it doesn't begin with doing more and going down and serving more and giving more money away nothing ever begins there it begins with understanding that i trip prater and no different than the prostitute standing on the corner of 25th street that I trepreter am no different than that person that is struggling with whatever they're struggling with. We are both in debt. Yeah, that one may feel like a, a weight of a thousand years. But whether it's 50 or 500, doesn't matter. I can't solve my own sin dilemma. I am a broken, sinful person. And loving much begins with understanding that I am not different from anyone else. We both have deep sin problems. The second thing that I see pouring out of the story is that loving much begins with passion. Passion. 
And that's a funny word because we, our, our culture doesn't use it real well. We attach it to sexual things all too often. But passion is sort of this, it's a raw emotion and it's never pretty. It always comes out in crazy ways and we can never really control it. And when I look at this woman, what I see is an outpouring of emotional and spiritual passion. I mean, think about the scenario for a minute. What would drive you to bust through this Pharisee's house as a prostitute, as an outcast, as a sinful person, through the most important people in the community? All would be men. All would have the power to rule over your lives and put you in jail or throw you out. All could ridicule you and make your life a living hell. What would drive you to gather up the one things that you own, perfume, cross the threshold of the religious elite and throw yourself at the feet of Jesus and just weep? There's only one thing that will cause you to do that. And that's coming face to face with your own reality your own brokenness, your own sinfulness. It's what causes real spiritual passion when I recognize who I am in the presence of who God is. We see it happen in Scripture all the time. When people come face to face with Jesus, they usually end up at his feet. Because when we come face to face with who God is, and I see my own sinful nature, my own sinful heart, the result can only be brokenness. And this woman sobbing at the feet of Jesus, trying to scrub her tears off his feet with her hair, covering it up with perfume, trying to show anything about total submission. I just laid her whole life out. And I find this kind of passion remarkable because very few of us are really ever broken by our own sinfulness. A lot of times we think sinfulness is inconvenience. It's, you know, I know God's disappointed and I shouldn't have done that and I'm sad. But very, very rarely do I think about how much it really breaks God's heart. And almost never am I really broken over it. I mean, let's be honest. When's the last time you wept yourself to sleep over your own sinfulness? We usually cover it up by what? By doing, by serving, and trying to love more. Because somewhere along the way, the church has been fed a lie and told that if I just do more, I don't have to deal with the reality of who I am. And you can see why it's easy to do, because the more I serve, and the more I love, and the more I give, and the more, and the more, and the more, the less I have to deal with the fact that I'm just a prostitute. I'm sorry, it's just true. See, loving much begins with understanding that you're a broken, sinful mess that is in desperate need of Jesus Christ. No different than that person that's filling their veins with whatever it is they're filling their veins with, sleeping under the bridge. No different than your crazy mother-in-law. No different than whatever. You are as sinful and as broken as anybody else in this world. Begins with understanding that you're both in debt and that neither of you has the ability to rescue yourselves. When you understand that, and you understand that it's the God of the universe who died on a cross so that you could have life. And you realize how black your heart is. The things that you think. The fears that you have. Don't pretend that they don't exist. They're in there. When you realize those realities against the perfection of God. And it breaks your heart. That's where loving much begins. Because out of that place comes abundance. Comes the ability to love the unlovable comes the desire to serve. Notice this woman, right? She wasn't falling at the feet of Jesus 
right, to earn forgiveness. She was at his feet because of forgiveness. And Jesus looks at Simon and uses her example and he says, she is forgiven. Why? Because she has loved much. What did she do? She just recognized her own reality and her own need and laid it all down at the feet of Jesus. And our kind of Western culture, Christianity, Christian culture, that doesn't look like loving much, does it? It doesn't look like she gave all of her money away and went down to serve at the mission and came up on Sunday and cleaned pews and did whatever. That is not a picture of serving and loving. It's a picture of brokenness and desperation, which is where Jesus says love begins. If you are loving out of any other place than brokenness and desperation, I guarantee you most likely it's false and it's to cover something up. But the church begins to truly love when it realizes how broken it is Right, how broken it is, how desperate our need is. And out of that place comes the ability to love beyond what you ever dreamed you could do on your own. Because when you realize that you are just as much in need of Jesus' saving love as anyone else, the ability for you to love goes up exponentially. So when I talk about it, when we as a church talk about loving much, we're not talking about doing more. We're not talking about making sure we fill our quota for serving hours down here or doing whatever. We're talking about the reality of recognizing that we're all just a bunch of prostitutes under different names, dressed like bankers or holes in your jeans. It's just the reality. And we've all been rescued by the grace of Christ and we lay our lives down. And at that place, we become a people and individuals that can truly love can truly give and that can truly serve anything else is empty and hollow so when we talk about we want to be a church that loves much and loves well love well we'll get into next week but loves much this is the place that we begin basically say this we're all just a bunch of broken desperate prostitutes who cannot remedy our own situation but in the desperate need of jesus christ and because of that rescue of jesus every day we want to love the world and love God with an extravagant love that he lavished out on us. That's what that means. Doesn't mean we do more. Doesn't mean we serve more or give more. It just means that we begin from a different place. And when you begin from that place, you will be blown away by the depth of love that God gives you the ability to lavish out on the world. So if you're trying to cover up your own sinful reality by doing and giving and signing up for time and then telling everybody how much you serve, you wonder why it's not working. Telling everybody how busy you are and how much money you give and all those kind of things and you wonder why your heart is still breaking. It's because you've been fed the lie that most of us have been fed that if I just do more, somehow God will overlook the disaster that I really am. It's just not true. At some point in time, like that woman, we've got to come barreling through the door, throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus and dump everything we have out at his feet and say, I'm done and I'm broken. And you know what Jesus' response to that woman was? Right in the presence of the most religious people in the whole city was, she has loved much. And I guarantee you, Simon was over there going, what do you mean she's loved much? I'm the one that brought you into my house. I let her here. I'm the one that has served this people so faithfully. I'm the one that tells them what they do wrong. I mean, I have given my life to learning scripture. And Jesus looks at him and he says, she has loved much. And what does he say to her? Your sins are forgiven. Everyone freaks out. But you know why? Because your faith. What was her faith? What did she do? You know what she did? 
She didn't trust that God was going to take care of her for every day from here on out and give her X number of dollars, that she was going to have a new house and all that. That was not what faith means there. It just means that she recognized who Jesus was and who she wasn't, and she threw herself at his feet, saying, only you can help me. That is the biblical picture of faith. Only you can do it. You know, you come to a place of real faith when you say, Jesus, only you can do this for me. Cleanse my life. Free me. Remarkable as a church. Wouldn't it just be remarkable that as a church, when we talked about loving much, that's what we meant. That we're all a group of broken, desperate prostitutes that can't remedy our own situation. But because of the daily love of Jesus, we love the world with an extravagant depth and abundance. That'd be something. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the moments to gather here and